0: Welcome to The Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face.
1: Welcome, Scott, back to the Western Hemisphere.
2: Yeah, I mean we're practically neighbors again. I know. You, I'm you, only I'm only a few thousand. Kilo- <laughs> you know, what? in fact, I'm not sure that I'm any closer to you now, uh, but I am. But there is no longer an Atlantic Ocean between us, at least for a couple of days. I'm back in Canada. Um, just uh, keeping an eye on this country starting to fly apart. It's a bit concerning.
1: There is a episode of The West Wing where Donna figures out she's Canadian because. She was born in Minnesota, but a part where the border was readjusted. And there was somebody says, do you feel Do you feel any funnier? And she says, no, but I'm definitely already developing an inferiority complex.
2: <laughs> uh, well, Donna's great. That explains why she was so attractive on the show. Although they really dragged out the whole romance with Josh about, you know, as long as a viewer could possibly tolerate it. I mean, please let something happen. Yeah. And something finally did in like the last few episodes of the final season, but.
1: Yeah, it was interesting because it was awkward chemistry. Yeah, I enjoyed it was. The it was. Oh, it was a great show. So we are this week. I want to start off talking about. I've never really even formally announced something like that. This week we're going to start No, But we are both game. I didn't know you were a Game of Thrones fan. I knew you were a Billions fan, but I did not uh, know you were a Game of Thrones fan.
2: Hey, you know. So we got to be careful about you know. Well I don't know am I I guess I yeah I'm a fan i don't I don't feel like I'm as good a fan as many other people are. I mean, you know, life's busy, and it's been forever since Game of Thrones started, and so I rely upon other people to tell me, "Oh, you know why that was significant because she said that or he said that three seasons ago, and I'm like oh, okay, right, that is clever, but I'm never going to be the one to to spot those things however, you know on on the same in the same breath. It's interesting how, you know, when I was a kid growing up playing Dungeons and Dragons, that was very, like, geeky and unpopular oh, yeah. to do. And it seems somehow that now that's, like, you know, that's the cool thing to do.
1: What, what's interesting about Dungeons and Dragons is that, right, your, your armor class or, or how easy you were to hit depended on the kind of armor you had and also how agile, like, dexterity level of your character so right. such that like some like demigod like characters are just basically could can almost never hit them. And in the Battle of Winterfell, there's a few people like that. It's like their armor class in Dungeons and Dragons would be like so off the charts because they're in the middle of the Battle of the Dead, like Sir Jura, And you, everybody's like, getting hacked and you just can't hit him until the end. Like, right. like some people could just be right in the middle of the dead. And there are Jon Snow at the end when when the Night King rises all those corpses right. up and Jon Snow just he can't be hit. Like he he's, he's got like a right. ring of invisibility or something where they just cannot see him.
2: I mean, you can always you can always take a shot and if you roll a twenty, then maybe the dungeon master will you know record it as an exceptional hit. or Remember something.
1: Remember coloring in the die with crayon and wiping it off so you could see the. Did you ever have dice that were that had the 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 beveled sort of numbers and you could rub it with a crayon and then wipe the crayon off and you're you could eat, read the die
2: easier. I never did that. I didn't. I never really had difficulty reading the. The pips, on the force. The I mean, the dice were cool. I think that's. I think. I think the whole game had me at dice. I feel like this might be another part.
1: Yeah, of yeah, yeah. I we think. could talk about like, that. You we know, could yeah. talk about. <laughs> yeah, you
2: know, yeah. You know what? I, I'll get out okay. my character sheets. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. get out your character sheets. I'll explain why my characters could whip the floor with your characters. And
1: if you just real fast, if person. you had a character you had to pick right now, like we're starting, we're drafting characters. What class would you be?
2: Uh Well, like my first, my first ever character was a cleric and uh and i think i'd play a cleric again even though you know it, look it I, play one, I, suck, I play one i play one in real
1: life dude you do better
2: yeah that's right <laughs> you do better. So you, fantasy you try to escape that okay so you you'd play a thief or something. a
1: ranger i think a ranger although you know it's interesting and and <laughs> In Dungeons & Dragons, clerics can't use blades or sharp edge weapons. You can only use a mace. Right. Now, now right. in Donald right. Trump's America, I'm sure a cleric could use a sword, an AK-47. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Clerics, yeah. Clerics, you know, you, you right. could, there would be no weapon restrictions for clerics in America.
2: It would be interesting to – I wonder if anybody's done the study of – now we're getting way off topic, but I wonder if anybody's done the study of sort of – you know, almost like your myers Brig personality score and the character types that you yeah. choose to play, because it is quite odd to choose to play a cleric. I mean, your, your, your offensive capabilities are, are, are far more limited. The one cool thing you can do is you can cast healing spells. Healing? Which other people can't do. And like you can turn undead and stuff like that. So that's.
1: So really like if a vampire like zombie comes, you can turn them away because you're. Of your religious yeah. powers and prowess. Yeah.
2: But you know, like but at the higher levels of the game, like the other character classes could kind of find their ways to do that too. They find a ring of regeneration or they've got, you know, wizards that have some sort of like blood magic spells or something. And and so the the distinctive powers of the cleric class in Dungeons and Dragons seem to kind of fall away at the higher levels, and you're sort of left looking around wondering, why did I choose this as my fantasy career? Path, so it it has to be something to do with just the personalities of the people. I I, I do think if I look back at my D and D group, that I was the nicest person.
1: Well, that could be it. I mean, it might just be morally <laughs> you just wanted to influence them in ways that were yeah, that, that were kind right. and benevolent.
2: Okay, okay. So connect the, Okay, no, but so somehow you you want to take us on a road that's going to go through Game of Thrones to, to this, something to this deep piece. and profound about the world we live in. Yeah. Today. So basically. But no, yeah, so right. so I'm so okay.
1: Under. I thought the Battle of Winterfell was a great episode. There was so much well done. I thought the way. It, spoiler alert. Okay, if you haven't seen it yet, just tune out right now. All right, there we go. We, I feel like we gave people enough time. There we go. So spoiler alert. If you haven't tuned in yet, you, uh, or you know, if you haven't watched it, you don't pay attention to what we're saying. But I thought the way Arya killed the Night King was amazing. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see the Night King's demise like that. I thought there was going to be so much more to the mythology and thing. I mean, I feel like the way they closed that chapter of his of the story was great. I felt like the touching moments like with with Let me pause you there
2: for a moment because before because that's interesting you say that because for me I felt like that was my disappointment about the episode is there I felt like there was so much more mythology there about you know who is this Night King and 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 why on this quest and who are all these other White Walkers who are following him and you know why do they arrange body parts in a spiral and this seems to be something they've been doing back for like thousands of years and. And are the children of the forest going to be involved in this battle somehow? And, and and suddenly the need to explore any of that was just wiped clean because he's dead and they're all gone. But
1: then they'll just have like a an app where you just ask Bran all that. You'll have an image of Bran and he'll just tell you everything,
2: <laughs> give you details. <laughs> but but so you're saying you weren't disappointed with uh, that at well, all?
1: Well, I do. Okay. There was a little bit of, yeah, like. All this built-up mystique, and and but we don't know what they're going to say. Who knows? There might be more to it than we're th- we're thinking. So yeah. So let's yeah, yeah. Uh, the the other thing right. I thought the touching moments with Tyrion and oh what uh, Sansa Sansa, Sansa yeah. Tyrion and Sansa that touching moment was lovely. You know where they're talking and appreciating each other's virtues, which is you
2: know, <laughs> what was what was that? It was like best line of the of the episode where you know they're somehow talking about her her marriages, and she says. You were the best one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and his reply is, "What a terrifying thing!" Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah.
1: (laughs) And I thought, like, you know, the way that Dothraki wrote in and just got eviscerated, like, was so amazing. It was
2: masterful cinematography. It felt to me, and I'm sure there were many people, again, sort of, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons players among the show's fans, who thought, like, militarily, that was a dumb.
1: Uh, Oh, yeah, because you, it's a Calvary. (sighs) The the dead. Or don't I mean Calvary works like
2: have they never seen The Walking Dead? Right. I mean Do they not know anything about him, fight to yeah, <laughs> fight the zombie horse? Yeah,
1: like like you Calvary works best psychologically, right? Like disorienting like you come in from the mm. flank or something and you mm. break the discipline lines. You can't play Psyops with the walkers. It's just Undead. yeah, it just right. doesn't really right. but you know, I and there's something too about like although it's pre modern, still you have the sense that, you know, the age of dragons magic is it's looked at as either gone or just completely made up or ancient stories, mm. and and really, mm. it's funny. Even where the magic happens, it's to the north and mm. the south. The, the the further you get to the center, west or us, there's more cynicism about those things.
2: Interesting, and right. And, right. and and yet we don't believe in children's stories anymore.
1: Yeah, and yet the, they're in the middle of the age of epics, and so that the way that battle took place, the Dothraki, all these things that that they, they're going to be a barred song, you know, like it's it's it was told mm. epically so that it would be like a Bard's song, you know? It was just like, there were so many scenes you can imagine mm. people singing about generations and generations later. And and, and, and you know, and there was the critique too about like the, the lighting and, and one of the, the director actually said that the reason it was so dark is because HBO, the compression is like really bad. And if you looked at it on Amazon Video, the streaming service, it looked better because it's not, you know, so I don't know about, I haven't oh, checked that out. But so this, here's my point, right? The long, we could talk Game of Thrones forever, and you know, we, maybe we could do a special. But and I do have some ideas for Dungeons and Dragons episodes.
2: But I, no, I like it. I mean, this is this is our form to be meandering. Yeah. So right. I mean, here's uh, the thing
1: that's interesting. That episode was the second lowest ranked episode on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, it was still a 77, which is huh. which is as ranks go, like a lot of shows would be happy with a 77, but still. So it's this, it makes me think like our expectations in the golden age of television are too high. Like, like the fact that mm. people look at an episode like that and do so much picking apart and I'm all for criticism. Mm. Like I, I'm not like anti, right. you, uh, you know, uh, critic. And I think, you know, A.O. Scott says in his great book on criticism that there's this weird thing between the subjective and objective polls on aesthetics. And, and what criticism does is you can't Ever have an objective aesthetic, but we can have a more shared aesthetic. Like it, it, it helps like draft the contours of the shared aesthetic. So I'm not anti-criticism, mm. but some of the critiques of things like that are just amazing to me. And I think what's interesting is we expect so much out of our our entertainment, and then the way we look. Oh, God bless you, my friend. God bless you. If I were good. a Dungeons good. and Dragons cleric, I would cast a healing spell right now. Thank you. And mm. Our, our expectations for entertainment are so high and our expectations for public life are so cynical, low bar. Mm. And it, it, we just like really kind of don't have any, any passion for the tension between is and ought. It's just, we accept, we accept it is, is ought Right. And that, and that pol- politics and public life are things which we ought to be cynical about. You can't expect it's, you know, for instance, I was looking at some commentary yesterday around the in the United States around the william barr a g committee meeting with the Senate, i guess the Judiciary Committee, which Lindsey Graham chairs. Uh, and people just like once somebody said, "Well, if you liked Trump, you thought this way. If you didn't like Trump, you thought this." And more and more, that's kind of the analysis. Well, if you like, so you know. And I came across this article which I sent you today, called "The Art of the Possible" in the Hedgehog Review, and the subtitle is "A Zero Sum Reality in Which Every Win Is Someone Else's Loss Exists in a Constant State of Crisis" by B. D. McClay. And I think part of what he's talking about is that this sort of cynical view of the world and uh, sort of accepting it as things have been, so they shall be. You really can't change anything. And any advantage for someone is a loss for me. You know, that there's not a creative destruction and new birth kind of things in unforeseen imaginative ways in our public discourse and life together. That this kind of, th- this is, it really is deleterious and just bad for Culture when we have that kind of unimaginative view of our shared life together. So it's interesting. We have such high expectations for our entertainment and such low expectations for our shared life together, which strikes me as, you know, a sign that the barbarians are at the gates or maybe we're the barbarians or something.
2: So lots of thoughts in response to that. I suppose one is, um, you know, how is this related to... How is this related to individualism, right? And, and, and so if, if modernity is becoming increasingly individualistic and there are technologies that are enabling that and there are all sorts of, um, values and values embedded into policies that are, um, enabling that and, you know, all sorts of arguments about the erosion of the public sphere does that. And, and so, you know, entertainment then, um, you, you know, and and the interesting thing about uh you know uh, like film and t v in particular is it is a very individual form of entertainment in the sense that i mean we go to we go to the movies together, but we all just sit silently and don't communicate with one another at all and we stare at a screen and then we kind of step out and talk about it so it's a profoundly individual um experience to to undergo, and it only becomes social to the extent that we you know then have these sort of fan debates, but well, what, you know, what did you like about that? And what did I like about that? But it's, it's not a, there's not a, a yeah, we, we don't experience the thing together.
1: like, it is different when you, when you are in a room together as a scene happens, like, like, like the energy when, you know, like John Podhorowitz, one of the, he's a political commentator, editor of commentary magazine. He was talking about this scene with Aria and the night King. He said, I was watching it in a, on an iPhone in a hotel in Southern California And I gasped when it happened, you know, like and and Mm. many people, I'm sure, had those kind of and, you know, it's so much different when you're in a theater and there's like 400 human beings and you all kind of like, you know, you feel it. It's just it's a different experience.
2: That's interesting. But it's also so right. And at the same time, it can I can sometimes feel a certain sadness in a movie theater when you sort of have those moments where you step out of your own space and you sort of. Yeah. Look at yourself in the theater and think, my goodness, is this, is, is there something richer here that we are, that we are failing to enjoy or create together because we have decided to come together in this odd, in this odd ritual where we are. Um, where everyone else is an inconvenience, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> where we think that I, you know, in the ideal world, I'd sit in that theater by myself. It's, you know, probably what a lot of people in the theater would would think. So, but where I'm going with that is, so I wonder if the the sort of the the augmentation of our standards for entertainment, you know, for the individual pleasure that I get from this being so high versus our standards for what we expect from uh, public and social activities, um, you know, for our politics um, being, in contrast, like ridiculously low, does it have to do with, in you know, in, in some fundamental ways of how we've, where we've learned to prioritize our experiences? And, you know, how, I mean, it probably very, um, very alien to say, you know, Ancient Athenians, where I'm sure, or I maybe I'm not. Let me retract that. I fantasize that uh, you know the experience of getting together um, to to talk about the the business of the people was uh, was kind of a thrilling thing. It wasn't it wasn't boring. It wasn't oh you know. That was the the most depressing part of of my week. That was probably the height of it where we, we we got together and got to to treat these issues and you know and there was also in that culture a sense uh, of, of a shared understanding that you know my my own life's meaning is sort of largely shaped by what value am I bringing or what excellence am I demonstrating in front of My people in front of the people. Um, and, and so it it seems to me that there's this whole kind of like almost missing cultural framework of, uh, of, of, of getting deep satisfaction out of. Shared experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is part of that book we talked about before. This guy I've interviewed, Ed Watts, The Mortal Republic. Like, he talks about how part of, in the third and second century, he, he looks at, like, the golden age of what he thinks is the early Roman Republic and its decline, I guess, in the you know in the second century, uh, the late sort of second century. And he thinks that, like, in the best days of the Republic, there was a real incentive to be a good citizen. These families, like, there was an honor system. And you didn't make a ton of money by being a good Roman family you, you know you weren't terrible terrib- you know you, you weren't terribly uh, you know you weren't like in dire straits financially but it wasn't a place where you are going to get colossal wealth or anything but you there was a real social capital in, in in being a good citizen of the republic in your family's name and that incentivized citizenship and participation and Then eventually that just declined you know that became something that wasn't a currency that was spendable anymore and and yeah, I think that we, you know, it's interesting. You think about like what it used to mean to be a celebrity, right? It, it meant everybody know knew your name, you know. What I mean, like that kind of thing. Now anybody can be an Instagram influencer. Very few people will probably be Lady Gaga or Bradley Cooper or something like that. But you know, you could you could you could get a million Instagram, you know, followers if you have a great dog or if you're really good at you know, <laughs> filming your kid playing with toys and reviewing toys or something. You're kind of. Even the sta- the standards of celebrity change, right, and become more individualistic and more siloed.
2: Right. That's. I think it was. I think it was Victor Hugo who said that popularity is is the crumbs of greatness. Uh, I don't know if that was him, but I, I think it was. But my point, like, I, I feel like those words have never been truer. That um, you know the 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 difference between celebrity and and hmm, what word to use problematic, but like significance seems to be greater than probably it's ever been in human history whereas you roll back 2000 years um you know the only the only celebrities were doing something significant for the people right or something significant among the people like uh, you know it 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 had to it had to somehow relate to um to the catalog of virtues
1: you're saying Paris Hilton doesn't do something significant for the polis <laughs>
2: Well, that's why, <laughs> is, right, so that, that's why. Is that I'm what you're saying? Pausing on that word "significant" yeah. because there she's are many doing, examples. She's where. not doing.
1: She's not doing. She's left She's not a paragon of some civic virtue. Is what you're saying?
2: Or the Kardashians or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess that is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, yes. So. Mm-hmm. I want to read from this piece in the Hedgehog Review. This this, this guy's talking about his article and his frustration with the zero-sum politics and how every everything is treated as an existential crisis. And he says, the above is mostly an, an attempt to articulate, albeit in an abstract way, something that's nagging at me as I watch one political battle after another take place. I take most of the issues at stake here quite seriously. I don't believe it's a waste of time to dedicate attention, money, or thought to them. I don't decry the idea of politicization or polarization as such. It all, it all depends, after all, on what the politics are, what the where the polls sit. But what I resent about reality and the constant crisis generated thereby is its foreclosing of imaginative possibility. The nature of a crisis is that you don't have the ability to think outside it. You just want to survive. The nature of reality is that you can think outside it. Ex- is you, can, you can't think outside it except in explicitly fantastical terms. And yet many of our imaginative attempts to do so, a few shows on HBO come to mind, just seem to recapitulate our own reality of rape, war, and brutality in the name, again, of realism. Reality, it seems is only ever ugly. Strange. Uh, but then he talks elsewhere in the piece about Leibniz, a philosopher, early modern philosopher, and how Leibniz's view that we're in the best of all possible worlds and somehow all of our struggles and and failures and all somehow contribute to a whole a, a that's better, even if you can't see the goodness that's developing. And mm-hmm. he just finds so- that, you know, more... He finds that more imaginative. I mean, he's not a utopian, but he, he thinks that, you know, if we had a more imaginative ability to see our context and our culture, we might have a, you know, a public life that is not so cynical.
2: And I guess, you know, that's really interesting, you know, Leibniz, who you're sort of trying to trying to make the case that, you know, the ups and downs of our individual lives are meaningful because what The, the, the shared project that we are helping to do is to make sense of life, um, make sense of the world, to, uh, endure hardship, to, you know, recover from loss, to, um, create and adapt. And, you know, all of these, all of these, uh, experiences that we have in our individual lives, Are, you know, to some extent, we are all, we are all sort of picking up a shovel and mining the universe together. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of ways to think about how that is important, right? And, and, and the ways you tend to think about how that is important is by getting out of your own head, right? The sort of the, the impact of, um, you know, the, the, the full disk of earth seen from space or seen from the moon. Or seen from farther away where you get the sense that this is some, you know, this rare and precious world, this, this oasis of life and, and consciousness. And surely there is, there is significance just at that level and we are all part of it. But, but, you know, that whole story and one can weave, you know, and, you know, operas about thinking and feeling at that level. It, it, does require some kind of um you know very very strong and live sense of shared project i think i mean it, otherwise it's just sort of individual fantasy you know I, I i i fantasize that you know when i lose my job and i have to go through the trial of you know personal uncertainty and doubt and maybe depression and 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 come out the other end of that trial with uh, a, a renewed sense of self and purpose and contribution and, and way of earning for myself my, like to, to make, to, to, uh, either I'm just fantasizing that is all somehow part of a greater thing or it's real, but for it to be real, I, I kind of need, I think, help from the culture around me Yeah, to look yeah. at, look at you and say, this is important. What you're doing, what you're going through, this is important to all of us. And I think that there is, you know that idea is, you know, especially in sort of, you know, sort of the modernity of the advanced democracies, um, rarely expressed.
1: Yeah, rarely yeah, and, and this is—I want to beat the Hegel drum again, which I've done several times, but, but this, this,
2: this, this—that's <laughs> uh, what we're gonna have. We're gonna have a drum and a, he- and we'll call a, it a Hegel with Hegel Hegel's drum.
1: picture on it. Exactly, I would,
2: <laughs> and I'll beat it whenever you say Hegel.
1: Yeah, that the, this whole idea in the intro, the I think it's in the intro to the phenomenology of spirit, where he says, you know, the truth is 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 the whole, and there, I mean, it it's a whole that is in contradiction, you know, and the way that I feel like Hegel is sort of mistaught, and to undergrads, is like, well, yeah, you, know, you have thesis antithesis synthesis and sort of the the contradiction makes a truth that takes the best and result it's not that the, there are like contradictions but when there's a new synthesis it creates new contradictions like but the truth is still in those evolving contradictions and he does think that that that's meaningful and and so you have to see that your political adversaries or people that, that that are not advocating the same thing you are are not only fellows or or citizens, or not only part of a shared public, but part of the public good is that they're opposing you. That there's something in the mm. opposition mm. that mm. the the truth is in is in is in some of these contradictions, right? And and that mm. that the, the the apparent irreconcilable nature or the apparent at oddsness that it's it's always either or and it's a zero sum game mm. that that's. Some of that's illusory,
2: so, you know? Right. So, yeah. So but I, I like what you said there, that, you know, s- um, some of the public good is in the opposition. And and I think that, you know, as we sort of you know, watch um, congressional hearings taking place in, in, in D.C. these days, or like Bill Barr in front of the, the Senate Judiciary Committee that you you mentioned early, I, I think that the, that sentence that you just stated seems to contrast sharply with the um, – with the politics of the present. This, like, how much recognition is there in these committee rooms that some of the public good is in the opposition? I think that much more it has become, uh, you know, that, 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 that position is, is that, that, that Hegel articulates, that you articulate is just so, like, hopelessly naive to the, the power struggle of the present. And, you know, like much of society, our economics, you know, trying to be the, you know, racing to get, to get the clicks and the likes and the, and the views. Uh, so much seems to be a kind of winner take all. Yeah. I mean, at the I remember- moment. And, and that that's the, the unreflective feeling that we have about the world is that it is this zero sum game.
1: Bill Clinton said something once that, you know, conservatives are there to remind liberals. What line shouldn't be crossed, and liberals are there to remind, to tell conservatives what line shouldn't been drawn in the first place, and that's simple. But it's but it, even and even if it's political rhetoric, at least the the grain of truth behind it or sentiment, if it's sincere, is that. That I that, you know in a, in a in a sort of two party polarity kind of discourse that mm. there's a need for each other you know that there are blind spots and 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 that a zero sum game is not a helpful way to frame things and it's, it's interesting too that I, there was one senator who I heard ask a really honest intellectual question it was Ben Sass, who's a conservative but not sort of a, an anti Trumper from Nebraska a young guy very smart mm. and he asked Bill Barr and like it was almost like Barr didn't know what to do with himself what well, <laughs> but he was asking, like, really, based on this report, how easy is it for a foreign national to just come over and say, I want to volunteer in a campaign and I want to – like, can you just do that as an avocation? And, and like – and Barb, Barb was kind of – I thought, wow, this guy's asking really good questions. Like, like an actual mm. search for the truth here that – what, mm. like, is it this easy to infiltrate our national campaigns that people, you know, can just come over and get connected and, and – like, you mm. know, I, I mean, I thought, wow – He's actually not trying to score political points. <laughs> he's, a- well, he's actually well, well, asking well, well, a question
2: with the public good in mind. Wow. But, and, but what's interesting about that example, brilliant example, because I would – I submit that why Barr was hesitating is that on the spot, he had a hard time knowing which is the right answer to give to maintain his narrative because he's he's trying to think like that was just such a question i wasn't expecting that if i answer obviously <laughs> that no it shouldn't be that easy then i'm going to get caught in a logic trap is this team because, republican or
1: team democrat
2: like it, yeah ha, ha, what, yeah uh, it, yeah it was really remarkable you could just tell on the spot like oh my goodness we you you're you're, you're trying to play a different game and i'm not quite sure i'm not quite sure, you know, like if I should, if I should pass this, if I should pass this puck or hit it, like, yeah, that was quite interesting.
1: Yeah. And and I wonder, you know, part of what I mean, maybe we need lower expectations. Although, wait, I don't want worse productions. I want, I want the worst Game of Thrones rating to be a 77. So now, but I mean, maybe we like, maybe we ought to have more imaginative. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, like GK Chesterton says, you know, that, you know, he talks about wonder and the differences with wonder. Look at a four year old versus a 14 year old at the zoo. Right. Four year old, a cheetah looks like might as well be a dragon. You know, like everything is amazing, right? They just don't think there ought to be cheetahs or there ought to be baboons or sharks. When you're mm-hmm. a 14 year old, you're just on your phone now. It's just because you're cynical, mm-hmm. you know, and, and wonder, mm-hmm. I think, is it's at the heart of the capacity to engage the world with imagination and vigor, right? When you're cynical, just take things for granted. And I wonder how, you know, how we, Cultivate a sort of non-cynical culture. I mean, I, I, yeah, you know, maybe. I mean, so, maybe just yeah. start small. I don't know.
2: Well, I, I think uh, I, so. That's a really great question. How do you cultivate a, a less cynical culture? Um, and I think that starting small is probably a good idea. And I also think that there, you know, um, maybe the most impactful and low-tech example is meaningful talk with one another, which sort of goes full circle back to you know the. The, the inkling of sadness that I sometimes have in a movie theater when I think that, you know, we are all together and yet complete atoms from one another in, in this, in this way of coming together, which must be a quite novel thing, I think. Um, maybe not, but you know, it, given how, given how we consume information, given how the algorithms are, are, um, Segmenting the information based on what is most likely to get us to click through, uh, rather than, you know, what we might find difficult to hear, but probably should hear. Um, you know, the just common knowledge is, 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 is broken right there. It's remarkable that, you know, there isn't common knowledge about vaccines anymore, say, right? And, and it seems to me that that, a is, good that is way the second
1: to- best modern societal bang for your buck behind probably clean water, right? Like if you're trying to establish a modern thriving, it's, Mm -hmm. it's the best bang for your buck is vaccination, right? I mean, again, after clean water, in fact, my wife was, I was talking about my wife talking about this with my wife and she's a medical professional and she said, absolutely. That's like what all like world relief organizations try to do. It's like water and vaccines. I mean, just what you can do there. It's just amazing. Right. I mean, it, it is unbelievable. The power of vaccination.
2: Mm. So that that even that can be um, demoted from the status of from the status of
1: it's the bat phone. That that but two the, rings. That, that person was not persistent. <laughs> Canadian. It's that, Canadians. You know, it's it's they're polite. After yeah, right, two rings, the person like... must not want to be called. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was going to say, you know, that, that even something like the, the, uh, the value of vaccination can be demoted from the status of like common knowledge is something that everybody obviously knows to a debate, to a contest to me suggests that, you know, what can we do? I think we do need to start to figure out, well, how, how can we, how can we then assert our, our identity as social beings against, um, against this, uh, technology that's bifurcating us and these politics that are bifurcating us. Um, you know, and I, I go back to, you know, our our get together in in Toronto at Base Camp Toronto and some of the other ones you're going to be doing where we say, well let's we do have some common challenges. So let's start there. And let's get a few people together in a kind of structured way and talk about uh what is our understanding of this problem. And and meaningfully talk about why it's important and um what it means to us and you know are there any actions that could be taken? Maybe that we don't all agree that, you know, yes, this is the top priority thing to do, but at least that we can all align on as, you know, I wouldn't oppose you doing that. I'm, I'm, and, and if you're going to go ahead and do that, then maybe I'll support you. And, and, and so come together and come away with some shared purposes. I actually think that in terms of, you know, like the highest form of sort of satisfaction and entertainment and pleasure that we can get, those kind of, you know, like free human encounters can be enormously transforming for us individually. But also, you know, you start to add those up and, and just once we, once we sort of recover the capacity to just, you know, strike up conversations with with one another, I I think that it yeah I, this is this is why at Aristotle, the most fundamental level that's for some of the the ability to to reintroduce you know shared concepts of civics and virtues and be a little less cynical about our world. I think that's where it actually began.
1: Yeah, and this is why Aristotle can say and people today it sounds like in complete insanity, right? But. He'd say, you know, political science is, in, in a sense, the highest science, because he thinks that, you know, what's the most rational animal we know?
2: As a political scientist, I
1: totally The cockles of your heart are warming.
2: Yeah, no, but, but when you think
1: about this, you know, for him, if human beings are the most rational animal and we're social animals, so ethics, living the good life is key. But then also, for him, politics isn't merely, you know, the science of competing egoism's you know struggling for finite resources and motivated by scarcity it's actually coming together to reason to seek the good we have in common in the, poly, in, the in, in the group and so for him yeah that's done well it's it's some of the highest human achievement you know because it's it's because we are capable of a lot of meaning and common welfare. And I mean, that's, you know, that, I mean, that no, again, today, saying that, that kind of Aristotelian statement is just looked at as ludic- <laughs> yeah, political science, the highest, you know, like, but it, yeah, mm. but in the classical sense, and Aristotle saying it makes sense when you when you kind of take on his assumptions for a moment.
2: And I think that the, you know, talking about uh, political divisions in society, it seems to me that Where the opportunity lies for, take the U.S. example, you know, Democrats and Republicans to, you know, recover, to, to recover a little more optimism about a shared project and push back a bit against the cynicism of the zero sum game is uh, to talk about tradition. I mean, tradition should be something that conservatives can get, can get on board with. Like, yeah, let's talk traditions. I love talking about traditions, right? Um, And, and I think Democrats can as well. And, and, and you almost, I, I feel like there almost has to be like a rediscovery project of like, why, why did we do this to ourselves? Like, because we don't, we obviously don't agree with one another on a whole bunch of things. Why did we ever decide that we wanted to do something together? What was that? And kind of go back in time to the point where, oh, this is what we shared. And we say we share this, we disagree on those things, but we really share this. And so we're going to set things up in a way where, you know, part of the public good is. Being in the opposition, and um, and and maybe recover some of that understanding. I I didn't have a chance yet to tell you about it, but a few weeks ago, I was in New Zealand talking at this conference. Wait, before you go there, can we just pause? I just
1: want to say one thing before we go to sustainability, in New Zealand about the, what your comment about tradition. Do you know the book Democracy and Tradition by Jeff Stout? Yeah, yeah. he was my teacher at Princeton. I love that guy. I mean, just oh, a brilliant guy, dude. But but that book is is sort of the counterpoint to the sort of Alistair McIntyre, Stanley Harawas to think, you know, liberal democratic capitalist society with free market. It just can't sustain traditions. And it's, an, you know, that, mm. but I mean, Stout no, really thinks that, that, and, and he is trying to lay out a sort of appreciation of democratic tradition that I think you could be right or left. And yeah, so I think I just want to mm. second your mm. point and say you're in the great uh, constellation with
2: Jeff Stout. I must reread my stout. I don't think that he considered me in his consolation. <laughs> anyway, um but so so something really interesting. So it was a conference, it was sort of indigenous world leaders and uh some very sort of like Western corporate bigwigs talking about sustainability. And in sort of you know, indigenous worldview on the economy and, uh, let's say like more enlightened contemporary mainstream worldview that kind of recognized that we've got environmental limits and stuff like that. And, and what I didn't realize until afterwards is that actually there was quite, quite a political tension in that room mm. because you basically have sort of an, an indigenous perspective, which is to say like, well, we all, we, we've never, we've always been sustainable. We've always been doing this right. And you guys kind of need to abandon your way of looking at the world and, and come back to origins. And, uh, you know, the, the big corporate world is sort of like, well, you know, we've built the modern world that we all value and that required a very different worldview. And, and yeah, you know, we want to learn from you, but, um, but we don't want to abandon all the great things that we've achieved. Um, and so there's this tension there. And, uh, I, I gave a talk sort of about the, the history of, um, sort of the mainstream uh economic worldview we live in today. And and along the lines what I did is I, I I went to the beginning, uh sort of, you know, in 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 primordial human times, when the indigenous worldview was the only worldview. And uh and I demonstrated with some linguistic analysis, sort of old language roots, how to some extent that indigenous worldview is in every modern language still today. Like we haven't completely Lost our roots,
1: buddy. This is like um, such a Nietzschean way to approach it. I love this. This
2: is like Nietzschean. Oh, it gene- was. T- I, 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 I love idea. it. I, I love it. it. it, it give me, I'll give you one example. It's really interesting. So take, take, uh, take uh, word pairs like. Um, Clamor, which is make a big sound and clam up, which is to be silent. So they have the same archaic language root in English, which is clam. And the question is, why would we use the same word root to express opposite ideas? And the answer is that some of our word roots, they, they predate the time where we learned to differentiate sound into like, you know, noise and silence. It was just part of our auditory experience. Um, Others examples like, like, uh, word pairs like light and lie, right? So one is illuminating and the other is the darkness of knowledge. But there was a time before which we distinguished between the truth and the lie. And it was just awareness of the world around us. And that, that root word root comes from that ancient time in human consciousness when we hadn't differentiated a lot of things in our experience. Um, and what was uh, another good example? Oh, so for the, for the clerics in the room, um, Devil and God. Although it's it's easier to make the point if you take the Latin word for God or the say like the French word dieu, dieu and devil have the same Sanskrit root deva, because before we divided it into good and evil, it was all just spirit. So you know, so you get oos and ahs in the room. But the point that I was trying to make is that even in our language, in an unreflective way, we are we are. Um, uh, speaking with a kind of indigenous worldview in a lot of ways. So, so that was really helpful for people on sort of one side of the aisle who, who are, are trying to make this point that, that, you know, this traditional way of looking at the world really matters. And then the other point that I made is that, well, you know, about sort of 2000 years ago in, uh, in ancient Greece, you know, you had these, uh, philosophers who, who, who really, they discovered the power of the mind, right? The power of purposefulness. And consciously directed thought to, to create understanding in the real world through measuring things, which was a whole very different kind of knowledge than the more mythical knowledge that had existed in the past that, you know, the seasons turn and the sun rises and the, the, and, you know, the moon chases it and, and all of that kind of there was a lot of. Hieroph-
1: Hierophonic religious consciousness. Right. Hierophonic. Right. Uh, is that the word for yeah, it? Yeah, it's like when, when your sort of mythical imagination is around like su- re- repetitive cycles, right?
2: Sure. So, you know, and, 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 and so there was a, all sorts of very useful practical knowledge upon which whole civilizations, like agrarian civilizations were built that were about understanding nature's balances and polarities and dualities and, The harmony to be in, in harmony with nature and stuff like that. And, you know, you think of some of the greatest civilizations in history, like, uh, you know, sort of the ancient, uh, imperial China. The whole role of the emperor, the power of the emperor was to maintain the harmony between heaven and earth. Yep. Right. And, And so, like, sort of looking for what's going on in heaven and we're going to order earth to be a reflection of heaven. That was the power and the purpose of the emperor and all of his, his rituals, and you build a whole agricultural agricultural civilization on top of that. But the Greeks, they they discover this whole new power of you know breaking those cycles into like the triangle of of perception, right? Where sort of my two eyes are the subject, and I focus on an object, and I create knowledge of that specific object. And wow, how powerful a capacity that has proven to be in all the things that we've, we've done with it. And so this is sort of a longer story than I intended to tell. But what I, in the aftermath, when people came up to me and talked about how this had been a really helpful common story that situated and, and recognized as important, both sort of the, the enduring indigenous worldview and, and the power of 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 perception and 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 purposeful thinking, which you know today has sort of reached its apex, and maybe some would say has gone too far in in our modern economics and and, and modern society. But it, but that it's not it's not a bad thing. It's not a thing that needs to be purged. It's a it's a power that we need to respect and figure out how can we synthesize these these different worldviews and just just
0: or, or even just
2: see them in the in constant
1: that creative tension that, 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 that the the contradictions and tensions are are not things that need to be that, that there's fruit in, in in this tension you know that, that
2: right and you don't need to sort of destroy that opposite yeah yeah in fact you can't destroy it because in every in each of your words and actions you are whether you recognize it or not you're employing the perspective of the opposite and so you're far less distinctive as opponents as you even imagine, um, and I wonder if there is just so much opportunity in modernity, you know. And and I think that the headline example right now is in the politics of Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. to embark on somehow a, a similar project. And it's almost to say, like, it's not like we need to somehow, you know, suddenly be friends and brothers. But let's just let's just keep going after each other's throats. But let's just take another day, and uh, and 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 just explore our tradition a bit, and and not try to come out of it with a changed politics. But but just to at least to spend a day and remind ourselves and explore together, why did we choose to, you know, get in bed with our opponents?
1: Arthur Brooks from the American Enterprise Institute, I think he has a new book out on contempt and basically how he thinks the problem in our culture isn't anger or dispute or anything, it's contempt. It's when you view your opponent with you roll your eyes. You don't think they're you don't mm. think they have any value mm. and this is how marriages end and you know, pe- mm. it, it's corrosive to corporations and teams and it's contempt is it, but yeah, so I think that like how do we in our even in our heated moments not be contemptuous? but see that there's a greater thing, you know, I, and just to just kind of land a plane here, I mean, I'm just thinking practically like the next intractable, intractable situation you're in with like your spouse or partner or sitting at, at a conference table or, you know, or when you're watching cable news and you're just like this, no, no one ever goes, like, how could you reimagine, like what, if you widen the lens or what possibilities aren't we seeing because we're locked into the way the debate's framed, right? Like you, there's this old, um, there's this old uh, myth or old uh, you know anecdote about these two monks right and the one monk said, see, sees the other monk uh, smoking he says, "How can you be smoking I asked the abbot if I could uh, uh, pray or I could if I, if I could smoke while I'm praying and he said no and uh, he said Aha I asked the abbot uh, can I uh, pray while I'm smoking <laughs> <laughs> the power the prejudicial way of a power of framing the question, and so I mean what what sort of emotional myths and prejudicial lenses do we have that 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 lock us into this kind of cynical view and are they expandable
2: and I think you know to to add one more practical step um, so I think it's one thing to kind of do that exercise in the silence between our own ears you know i'm i 'm in this debate with someone, and I can feel my anger i my outrage um, I I had that just a few days ago. I had such a horrible customer service experience on Air Canada getting back to Canada. This uh, and 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 it was oh, it was it was it was such a good argument. Um, And and so in that moment, yeah, part of it would be to kind of you know try to flip the perspective. Think about how that agent must feel when this customer comes on and they've got their issues and they're also full of anger and rage and. But I feel like the, the 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 harder but also more important next step is to then try to talk about it. Not to just sort of do a reframing in my head, but to try to talk about the frame with someone else. Uh, in, in, in this case, Air Canada's customer service experience. So I was supposed to fly back to a kind of – I live in a small town. So it's a couple of flights to get there. And the first flight was delayed so far that they rerouted me through another city. And then I'm stranded in Toronto for a night. Um, and then carried on my travel the next day, which is fine, and visited friends in Toronto. But I, I said to them, like, surely you stranded me here. You're responsible for putting me up for the night. Um, and hotel and accommodation food and stuff like that and they said no no we're not so we had this whole debate and i just couldn't understand how they couldn't see that it was their responsibility to put me up for the night
1: especially since they're canadian more- I, I i think canadians I, are I, so I, nice i
2: know i know i know anyway so but that's over but the next morning i go back to the airport for my onward flight and i've got a bit of time to kill and i see there's a customer service desk and there's no one in line there's a woman standing there so i actually went up to her and uh and said, you know, look, um I'm not asking for anything, I, you know, it's sort of all water under the bridge, but I would really like to just talk with you about the experience I had yesterday. And it's not about I'm right and you're wrong or anything like that, but I just want to understand, help me understand what happened. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Because I just want to understand it at a human level. How did we get into this conflict And it was actually, it was really, it was a great conversation with this person. I think it was for them a conversation that they rarely have with a customer. And it was interesting that what we discovered was, so my first flight out of London had been delayed by about eight hours, and I knew that I wasn't going to make my connection past that. So I called Air Canada Service to sort this out. And we did, and they rerouted me, because like, yeah, good that you called us, because Had you taken that first flight, you would have been stranded for a couple of days, you know, in Calgary with no onward flight. So good that you contacted us before you left London. We put you on a flight through Toronto and we'll work it all out. But for the people in Toronto, what that meant is that I never got on a flight that left me stranded. Had I had I taken the original flight, there would have been a crew in Calgary that would have seen that, uh uh-oh, we've got a person here who's supposed to travel onward to a flight that they've now missed. So they're now our problem. we got to put them up for a night and sort it. But because I had sorted out that problem in advance with the airline, that team in Calgary never got the flag. And a team in Toronto never got a flag because as far as they were concerned, I was scheduled to fly out the next morning. Maybe I had intended to stay the night in Toronto. They had no clue, no information. So by solving the issue proactively, I had prevented the flag from going up in their systems that then activates their customer service team and says, okay, this is our problem. So, you know, it's not clear who was right or wrong. I still feel like I was right. It, it sounds like I, I, I feel like you were right, but. Yeah, yeah. But but I always, at least I understood how the humans that were connected to their systems were confused and weren't being dicks about it, but actually were saying, like, well, we don't understand why this is our problem because it seems like you're here voluntarily and you've got to This, is like, this is
1: like Hannah Arendt's it. banality of evil. It's the banality of uh, rudeness and not being courteous. It's a system that just yeah, kind of that's makes right. you that's rude.
2: Right. Hmm. So maybe that's, maybe that's always too practical, but I, I feel like for me, there was an important life lesson there, which is that, yeah, do the reframe. And I think we, we try to do that, but then next step is talk about yeah, the reframe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With, with, you know, modest, I mean, like hope, hope, hope and modest expectations,
2: you know, like. Yeah. yeah modest expect I, I think exactly right. If you go into it, like, let's, let's, let's do this two-step process that's gotten, Chris are talking about and, and, you know, and we'll transform our relationship with one another. I, yeah, no, but in, in sort of more the, the Leibniz way of, you know, let's, let's seize this opportunity to add something more to the world and something more to our relationship. Um, I think that that's the right the right expectation to have toward her. And, and, and yeah, and conflicts are great opportunities to add something more. Well, let's go alongside. the. Let's
1: conflict. go forth today, my friend. And, 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 you know, engage hopefully with modest expectations.
2: So what, yeah. So what, I, what I've learned from this is I should get into a fight with somebody and then ask them, can we talk about exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> Although it's harder. Maybe it's easier when you get to London. I mean, Canada, I'm going, I'll be in downtown Philadelphia in a few minutes in center city. So it's easy. I could, Anyway, to pick a fight down there,
2: <laughs> it is harder in Canada. I admit.
1: Um, well, I will talk to you next week, my friend. My friend, yeah, look forward to it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.